Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, if you would, turn in your Bibles, your copy of God's Word to Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 18 this morning. Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. It's, it was a privilege to be up front this morning. Normally I sit it back with my family, but being up front, being able to hear you all sing has brings such joy to my heart. So thank you for worshiping our Savior together, encouraging one another in song this morning. Well, as we do every week, I'll read our passage for us this morning and then take a moment to pray and to ask for the Lord's help. So Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for the grace and mercy you have poured out on us through the finished work of Jesus Christ in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. Father, we acknowledge that apart from your long-suffering nature, apart from your patience and kindness and mercy to us that we would not be here this morning. We would not have the privilege of gathering together with your people under the truth of your word, filled with your spirit, ready to be changed by the truth of the gospel, by the truth of your word. And so everything that's taking place this morning, Father, is a gift of your grace to us. And so I just acknowledge that we thank you for it. We praise you for it. And Father, we would ask right now that you would be at work in us through the truth of your word. You have promised to do that very thing for us. You have promised to to, to be at work by the power of your spirit through the truth of your word, changing us, transforming us, conforming us more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I pray that by your grace this morning, you would allow us to gaze at the glories of Jesus Christ, of all that he has accomplished for, uh, that he has accomplished for us, all that he is right now accomplishing for us, and that we would learn to grow in our affections for Jesus, to grow in our faith in Christ, to grow in our dependence on Christ each and every day of our lives. And so, Father, I pray that you would protect all of us this morning from being led astray, from having our affections pulled toward anything outside of Jesus. And so, Father, I pray that you would use this morning to keep us firm and steadfast. And so, Father, I pray that you would guide my words this morning. Allow me to speak only what is true of you and what is true of your word. And we pray all of this in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. 
Well, it's hard to quantify all that Christ accomplished for us when he took on flesh and came and dwelt among us. I fear that, in fact, we often tend to uh, oversimplify the gospel and not realizing the full breadth of all that Jesus accomplished for us when he took on flesh and came to earth. Because, yes, it is absolutely true that Jesus came to die on the cross and bear the wrath for sin uh, for all those who trust in him that, so that we might have eternal life. And for that alone, our hearts should be filled with unspeakable joy, uh, uh, praise, and worship for all eternity. The fact that he has rescued us from eternal condemnation and delivered us to eternal joy and the glory of his presence forevermore should overwhelm each and every one of us this morning with gratitude and with thanksgiving. Yet, there's so much more to the gospel than that. Christ has accomplished so much more than that for us. And our passage this morning is going to unfold more and more of what those glories are that Christ has accomplished for us by taking on flesh and dwelling among us. And my prayer is that when we leave here this morning, meditating on these verses, meditating on this passage, that our hearts would be more full of Jesus when we leave here this morning, because that's the objective of the author of Hebrews, right? We've seen that throughout chapter one. He wants to put on display for our eyes to see the glories of Jesus Christ. He's done that throughout chapter one. He's done it through the first half of chapter two, and here he's doing it again at the end of chapter two. He just wants us to see Jesus. He wants to see all the glories of who Jesus is and what he has done for you and for me. He wants to hold Christ up for us to gaze at and wonder in awe, adoration, and worship. And so I pray that we will do that very thing this morning as we see that all that Christ has accomplished for us in his incarnation, in his taking on our flesh. And so this passage <clears throat> outlines for us four accomplishments that Christ achieved when he took on flesh and came and dwelt among us. So let me list those out and then we'll tackle them one at a time. And here are the, the four things that Christ accomplished by taking on flesh. Number one, Jesus destroyed Satan. De Jesus destroyed Satan. Number two, Jesus freed us from fear of death. He freed us from fear of death. Number three, Jesus became our high priest. He became our high priest. And number four, Jesus became able to help us when we're tempted. Jesus is able to help us when we are tempted. So let's just take those one at a time. First, Jesus came to destroy Satan. Look there with me again at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So verse 14 tells us right there that the children share in flesh and blood, meaning you and I, the children that verse 13, that, that uh, verse 13 told us that God had given to Jesus, we share in flesh and blood. We are humanity. We have flesh. We, we have blood. And therefore it says because of that, Jesus became a human 
to redeem the humans, uh, the, to, to redeem humanity. That's why he took on flesh and blood, to accomplish the redemption of those he was sent to redeem. But why, right? Why did he have to take on flesh and blood? And that's what the author of Hebrews is going to really dig into for us this morning. So why did Jesus take on flesh and blood? Well, it's right there in the middle of verse 14. So that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. But let's just stop right there at those three words. So that through death. We hear it all the time. It's somewhat of a cliche, but here it is right in front of us because it's true and it's something we need to hear. Jesus took on flesh and came to earth to die. Jesus became flesh and blood so that he could die. You see, there was no path to death for Jesus apart from taking on flesh and blood. Right? We, we've seen this in chapter 1, right? The author of Hebrews has recounted the glorious reality of who Jesus is. It's, it's right there at the beginning of chapter 1. Jesus never had a beginning. There's never been a time when Jesus was not. All things in this world were created through Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the heir of all things. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is superior to angels, even holding them together by the word of his power. In other words, apart from the incarnation of Jesus Christ, Jesus cannot die. He was incapable of death. Therefore, in order for him to die, he had to take on weak and fragile flesh like ours. Jesus did not come as some superhuman, like superhero when he was here on earth, right? I'll never forget a few years back, our kids were in a, a children's basketball league and there was these, these two teenage boys behind us having a knockdown, drag out fight about who would win between certain superheroes, right? And it was all this detail about, well, no, you, you know, Superman, you can't hurt Superman, you can't do this, you can't do that, right? And, and then there's that kind of somewhat famous line in that uh, Batman Superman movie where Batman asks Superman, right, do you bleed, right? Uh, I don't know what the answer to that question is, but I'll tell you what the answer to this question is. Jesus Christ took on frail, weak human flesh, so that he could bleed. Jesus took on fragile, weak flesh of humanity so that he could die. This wasn't some superhuman flesh. It was flesh that could starve to death, that could get sick, that could get cut, and yes, that could bleed. He took on that flesh for you and I so that he could die. And he did so because he, know, he knew that through death he could destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. You see that right there in the second half of verse 14. He came so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Now, we need to pause here and be sure we understand what this passage means when it says that the devil has the power of death. So let's just make a few really important clarifying comments about that. First, I want to be clear that, that the Bible is absolutely clear in its assertion that God is the one who gives life and breath to all things. 
And God is the one who can remove that life and breath at any moment he wishes. Satan is not sovereign over the span of our lives. That right belongs to God and to God alone. Job 34, 14, and 15, talking about God. If he should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. God, through Jesus, upholds the universe, upholds every man and woman by the word of his power every moment of every day. And he can choose to let that go at any moment for any particular person. Our lives rest in the hands of God. Or there's Acts chapter 17, verses 24 and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God is sovereign over our lives, not Satan. Furthermore, the fact that Satan, according to verse 14, has the power of death does not mean that Satan or the devil controls our eternal destiny. Satan controls the eternal destiny of no one. God alone is the righteous judge of the universe. God will sit in judgment over man. He will, for all who trust in Christ, usher them into the eternal joys of, of the new heavens and the new earth in the presence of Jesus Christ forevermore. And for all those who have rejected Christ, God will usher them into eternal condemnation in hell apart from, the presence of, apart from his loving presence for all eternity. God is the judge of the universe, not Satan. Satan condemns no one to hell, but is himself condemned to hell. So let's just be really clear about those boundaries. So what does then verse 14 mean when it says that Satan holds the power of death and that Jesus has destroyed him? Well, I think the point that's being made when it says that Satan has the power of death is that Satan is able to, that the devil is able to weaponize death to serve his purposes because he wants nothing more than to usher as many human beings as possible to join him in his eternal suffering. Therefore, Satan does everything he can with his demons, with manipulation, with the, the, the influences of this world to keep our eyes off of Jesus, to keep every person possible from turning to trust in Jesus Christ, to repent of their sins and to pursue Christ. He wants to keep as many people as he can down the path to sin and away from Jesus so that he can keep them under the eternal wrath and condemnation of God so that they might die for all eternity. That's the power of death that Satan has. And it is that kind of power that Jesus came to destroy. Because Jesus came to crush the head of Satan. Right? That's what was promised in Genesis 3.15, thousands of years before Jesus ever set foot on earth. That there would be a seed of Eve that would come and crush the head of this deceitful serpent. And so Jesus came and he did it through the cross. It is through his death on the cross that he 
crushed the head of Satan, that he destroyed Satan. And when Jesus died on the cross, he removed the sting of sin. And therefore, sin can no longer, uh, uh, sin can no longer harm the redeemed children of God. And so death can no longer harm the redeemed children of God. That's what 1 Corinthians 15, 56, and 57 says to us. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Or there's Colossians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, which says this about the work of Christ on the cross. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Listen to this. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He disarmed the rulers. He took the power of Satan away. He destroyed Satan for all who trust in Christ. And so although Satan lives on, he, according to 1 Peter, prowls about the earth looking for those he can devour. He prowls about as a defeated enemy. And the power of death has been removed from him. And not only did Jesus destroy the devil who had the power of death, but in doing so, he delivered us from the fear of death itself. <clears throat> so let's look at this second achievement of Christ, that he freed us from fear of death. Look there with me at verse 15. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So, so what the author of Hebrews is saying is that not only did Jesus destroy the devil himself, that he rendered him powerless, by doing so, he also delivered his children from the lifelong uh, slavery that we were experiencing through our fear of death. Now notice with me that this is an aspect of the work of Christ that we don't have to wait for eternity to experience, right? We experience this right here and right now. Right now the reality is that you and I have been freed from slavery because we have been freed from fear of death. And according to verse 15, that should be life altering for us. I mean, think about it, right? Think about what slavery must have been like, you know, a, a century ago, a couple of centuries ago. And think about children that were born into slavery and it's all they ever knew, right? They'd experienced lifelong slavery. And then there was a generation of those children who were emancipated and set free. And just one day they were slaves and the next day they were free, right? Think of the radical reality of what that must have been like for them to have been enslaved their entire lives, right? Lifelong slavery. And then all of a sudden they were set free. And th what the author of Hebrews is saying to us is that is exactly what we should feel like, what we have experienced by being free from our fear of death. We were enslaved to it for our entire lives until Christ came. And through faith in him, we have been free from that fear of death. But the reality is, I think this is one concept of salvation, one concept of what Christ has accomplished for us that we don't think on near enough. What does it mean to be freed from fear of death? And what did it mean to be enslaved by fear of death? Because I don't think many of us would even think about our lives before Christ in that way. We wouldn't say, yeah, I was enslaved because of fear of death. 
So what exactly is the author of Hebrews getting at when he says that we were enslaved by our fear of death? Well, to be enslaved by something, to be a slave of something, means that it has control over you. Means that it orders your life. And the reality is that the prospect of death for those apart from Christ is a terrifying reality. Therefore, people spend their lives coping with this reality, whether you realize it or not, consciously or subconsciously. Apart from Christ, people spend their lives coping with the fear of death and with the reality of death. And it is that coping mechanism, whatever it may be in someone's life, that enslaves them and controls them. And there are a number of those, and we can't list all of them today. Some people cope with the fear of death through idol worship, right? Through the pursuit of, of false religions, hoping some way, somehow, that it will lead them into eternity of peace. But that is enslavement to a lie. Another way people cope with it is by simple denial they fill themselves up with just constant entertainment, whether it's TV or movies or social media or whatever it needs to be to the point where they're just numb to the realities of life and death. It's something they don't even want to think on, something they don't want it, that they don't even want it to fill their minds or, or they fill their lives with drugs or abuse of alcohol or they fill their lives with debauchery or whatever they need to do to keep themselves from facing the reality of their own mortality. They're enslaved to those things because of the prospect of death. Others cope with death by thinking somehow they can hold it off. The world spends trillions upon trillions of dollars on the health and wellness economy. The, stat the statistics are staggering the money that is spent on health and wellness. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be healthy. I am not saying that, so... Don't go home saying our pastor says we don't need to be healthy, right? That's, that's not the point of what I'm saying. But I am saying there are many people who have an unhealthy obsession with thinking somehow they're going to keep themselves from dying. And they spend their entire lives, their every moment of, of every day almost, it feels like focusing on how they can take care of their body and be sure they can live for more years and more years and more years. But I'll ask the question, what are they then living for? They're living just so they can live. The, the, the purpose of their life is just to keep living. Right? It's enslavement. It's vanity. Because death is coming for all of us. Others cope with death by trying to make it appear that maybe they're not actually heading in that direction. And so they spend millions of trillions of dollars on unnecessary plastic surgeries or or they put every picture online with a digital image filter, or they invest in anti-aging products or whatever it needs to be just so we can keep ourselves from looking in the mirror and re remembering, I'm getting old. I'm going to die one day. Right? And we are enslaved to doing everything we can to keep from facing the reality of death. And when that fear controls us, we're enslaved by it and we're not able to live for the purpose that we were created to live. And that is for the glory of God. 
So let me read for you what a life sounds like that has been freed from fear of death. This is what the Apostle Paul says in Acts chapter 20, verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This is what Paul said when they said to him, if you go to Jerusalem, Paul, you're going to get arrested and most likely executed. And Paul's response was, then bring the execution. I'm living for the glory of God. I will exalt Christ with my life no matter what it costs me. That's a life lived free from fear of death. Paul was not an enslaved man. He was free to live for the glory of God no matter what the consequences. Or Philippians chapter 1 verses 19 through 23 also written by the Apostle Paul. Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians from prison. And this is what he said. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. And I just ask each of you this morning to meditate on that last line. Are you at a place in your walk with Jesus where you can say that to be with Christ right now would be far better? That's what it means to be freed from the enslavement to fear of death. It frees us to live for the glory of Jesus Christ. Well, that's what the author of Hebrews tells us with the next achievement of Christ. The third achievement of Christ in this passage, Jesus became our high priest. Jesus became our high priest. Look there with me at verses 16 and 17. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, once again, the author is reminding us of the central role that humanity plays in God's purposes for the universe, right? The mankind was created in the image of God. We have a central role to play through our redemption in bringing glory to Jesus Christ, right? That's what it says in verse 16. It is not the angels that he helps. There are a group of angels that fell from glory, that rebelled against God. They became Satan and his demons. Jesus did not take on angelicness to redeem the angels. Jesus has no intention of redeeming the fallen angels. It is not angels that he helps. 
No, he helps the offspring of Abraham. The offspring of Abraham are all those who share in Abraham's faith, who trust in Christ. Those are the ones that Jesus came to redeem. And verse 17 tells us that he had to be made like those people, like the offspring of Abraham, like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. See, this is an established pattern in the Old Testament. When, when men needed to be selected who would, who would represent the people of Israel before God, who would make sacrifices on their behalf, they selected men from among them, those who were like them, to serve as the high priest, to serve as the priest. And their job was to represent the people before God. They were to be, the priests were to be the mediator between man and God. And so they would physically be the ones who offered the sacrifices. The people would bring the sacrifices. The priests are the ones who offered the sacrifices. And then not only the ones the people would bring, but even the daily sacrifices that the priests needed to make, the yearly sacrifices at certain festivals that the priests needed to make on behalf of the people. They were the ones who shed the blood of the animals on behalf of the people, standing between the God's people and God himself. Therefore, it says, if Jesus was going to be our high priest, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. And in being made like his brothers, it allowed him, it says, to become a merciful and faithful high priest. And so therefore... Jesus coming in the flesh instead of offering an animal on that altar that could never ultimately deal with our sins. He laid down his own life on the altar. That's what the word propitiation means in verse 17. He became a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, I know that's a big word, and some Bible translations use different words there, use things like to make atonement or to make expiation or other words like that. And, and I, if your Bible says that, that's okay. But I just want you to know that propitiation is, in my view, it's the right word. And a lot of translators shy away from it because the, the sense of propitiation was used even in cult practices historically because what it simply means is the turning aside of the wrath of God by the shedding of a blood sacrifice. That's what propitiation is. It's to place a substitute on the sacrificial altar and shed the blood of the substitute to turn away the wrath of God. And I can think of no better word to capture exactly what it is that Jesus accomplished on the cross. And we don't need to shy away from hard words. We just need to learn what they mean. So let's learn what the word propitiation means. That's what it means. And it's what Jesus has done for you and for me. And it's why Jesus took on flesh. He took on flesh so that he could die. He took on flesh so that he could come and live a perfect, righteous, spotless life 
on this earth in your place and in my place. You see, the, the work of Christ is not just about his death. It's also about his life. And it's his righteous, spotless life that stands in our place. All who trust in Christ, we are not judged by our sinful lives of rebellion. We are judged by the righteous, sinless life of Jesus Christ. And then Jesus gives up his life on the cross as a propitiation, bearing the wrath of God the Father for us in our place so that all of our sins could be wiped clean and we would be forgiven and we don't need any longer to face the punishment and wrath that we fully deserve. And you see, Christ then rose from that grave. And because Christ victoriously rose and was given a glorified body and we are joined to him through faith in him, because of that, we too one day will join him in his resurrection and we too will have glorified bodies for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth filled with joy and satisfaction and worship of Jesus and the enjoyment of his creation of the new heavens and the new earth. Therefore, what the author of Hebrews is saying to us is you don't have to fear death. Christ has paid it all. There is no wrath and condemnation left for you. It was poured out on Jesus. He, was, he, he, he rose from the grave and was given a glorified body. We will join him in that glorified body. We don't need to fear death because death is nothing more than the beginning of an eternity of joy and satisfaction in Jesus Christ. Now listen, that doesn't mean that we don't weep when those we love die. It doesn't mean we don't hurt deeply at their presence no longer being among us. But it does mean we can grieve as those who have hope. We can grieve while also being filled with joy to know those who have died in Christ are standing in the presence of the glory of Jesus Christ at this very moment with unspeakable joy in their hearts. We don't have to fear death because of what Christ has accomplished for us as our high priest. And so God in Christ because he was our high priest, because he laid down his life on the cross, taking the wrath of the Father, we don't have to face the eternal consequences of our sin. But here's the really good news. The gospel isn't just about dealing with our sins in the future. It's also about being empowered to deal with our sins right now. Jesus came not just to forgive us of our sins, not just to not hold us accountable for our sins for all eternity, but also to help us fight against our sins right here and right now. And that brings us to the fourth achievement of Christ in his incarnation, that he is able to help us when we are tempted. He is able to help us when we are tempted. Look there with me at verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So the connection from verse 18 to verse 17 is this. Verse 17 says that he was a merciful and faithful high priest. Well, in what way was Jesus a merciful high priest? Well, one of the ways in which he was a merciful high priest is verse 18. For because he is able to help those who are tempted. 
That's why he's a merciful high priest, because he's experienced what life on planet Earth is like. And because he has been here, because he's experienced what we have experienced, he is able to help us when we are tempted. Jesus experienced life as we experience. He had temptations thrown at him continually. Now listen, there are mysteries to the incarnation that we will probably never fully comprehend. But let's at least put up some healthy boundaries to help us understand what's going on in verse 18. So Jesus was made like us in every respect, is what the passage says to us. But, but we know there are some notable exceptions, right? So for example, Jesus was born of a virgin. So there is a sense in which even there, he is not exactly like us. Jesus also did not have a sin nature. Jesus did not have indwelling sin. And so let, let's just be, be clear on that, right? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says he knew no sin. He perfectly trusted in his heavenly father every step of the way. So Jesus did not have the experience of indwelling sin, warring against the spirit, because Jesus had no indwelling sin. Right, so let's just be really clear about that. Jesus did not have a sin nature. So it's tempting because of that, however, to think, well, what does this passage mean? Because, because when we're tempted, it's a war of the flesh, right? It's, it's our indwelling sin, raging war against the spirit who dwells within us. It is this ongoing battle because we are sinful people and we want sin and we do battle in our hearts and in our minds. And so it's tempting to think that, well, how can Jesus really understand the struggle we have against sin when he didn't have a sin nature? Well, this verse says he can help us because he was tempted as we are and suffered when tempted as we are. So let's not think that Jesus can't understand the hardship we endure. Nothing could be further from the truth. And so just let me take some time to remind you of what Jesus endured and the temptations that were thrown his way. You see, Jesus faced circumstance of in other words, by refusing to give in to the sinful choice, Jesus had to deal with prolonged suffering and hardship. Therefore, he suffered when tempted, not because he was facing inner turmoil of the sinful flesh raging against the Spirit, but because his refusal to give himself to sinful desires made his life extraordinarily difficult beyond what you or I could ever imagine. So some of this is speculation and some of this is just fact. So speculation first. Jesus' childhood was probably incredibly difficult. Right? You all know how cruel children can be. Right? We, we've all witnessed it. We've all seen it. Can you imagine how a group of children would treat a child who never lies, who never gossips, who never disobeys his parents? Right? They would have been constant mockery. Right, this little 
goody-two-shoes Jesus over here who never does anything wrong. What, what, why, what? He's going to go tell his mommy, little mama's boy, always wanting to check in with Mary before he does anything, right? Constantly, constantly as a child, Jesus would have had to deal with that. And he could have relieved that mockery and suffering in a heartbeat just by one moment giving into it and saying, you know what? I'm not going to check in with mom this time. Let's just go do the thing. But not once, not once did he give in to it. And so it increased and it increased and his suffering and his misery was probably made worse and worse. You see, Jesus didn't relieve his suffering by giving in to the peer pressure. We almost always at some point have our breaking point. And we just give in and go with the flow. But he never, he never gave in. His teenage years were likely even worse. It seems that he uh, probably died. Jesus probably saw his mother struggling financially, economically. He saw his siblings mocking him day in and day out. And Jesus' own personal life day to day was hard as they probably lived in poverty. And at any moment, Jesus could have created money out of nothing. He could have used his power to put on some kind of show to manipulate people into giving money to his family, into giving them what they needed. But he never once gave into sin to relieve his hardship and suffering. He just endured. He faced down Satan in the wilderness, starving from a 40-day fast. And in that moment, his, the relief of hungry by turning a stone into bread that, that Satan told him to do, like, just, just do it, Jesus, just turn the stone into bread and eat. Like, in that moment, it would have brought unspeakable relief to his aching body that was probably on the brink of shutting down. But he refused to give in. And so he kept suffering. He refused to listen to the voice of that serpent of old. He would not disobey or dishonor his father just to make his life easier. And leading up to the cross, he knew what he was going to face physically, emotionally, and spiritually. He knew he was going to face the pain of being publicly mocked and beaten and whipped to a bloody pulp. He knew that he was going to have a crown of hardened and stiff thorns shoved into the brow of his head, gouging his forehead. The hill of execution. He knew that he would have nails driven through his hands and feet, and he knew that as he hung there, he was going to have to pull up on those very nails just to catch his breath. And that he would slowly wear out his body to the degree to where he literally could not breathe any longer. As he suffocated on the cross. And even though he knew it would all happen just this way. His desire was to fulfill the will of the father. And he prayed for strength to obey so intensely 
that the Gospel of Luke tells us that his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus refused to relieve his great suffering by giving himself over to sin and disobedience. 12 verses 3 and 4, he says, Consider him, Jesus, who endured from, such, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Have you faced down temptation so hard and so intensely that you sweat drops of blood? Jesus refused to give himself over to sin, no matter what the cost. That's the physical struggle. Then there was the emotional struggle, right? Twelve men who he spent almost every waking moment with for three years. Men who had become his friends, who followed him everywhere he went, who he confided in, who he taught, who he invested in. When the mob came for Jesus, they turned their backs and took off running. And Judas, of course, had betrayed him altogether. Can you imagine? In your darkest, most difficult moment, every person you've been close to getting as far away from you as they possibly can. And yet... For Jesus, the righteous pursuit of the will of the Father was worth the suffering. There was the physical suffering, there was the emotional suffering, but the greatest suffering of all would have been the spiritual suffering. Jesus knew that on the cross, he was going to have to bear the weight of the sins of all those given him by the Father of all of the children of God that the Father had given him, of his brothers, of the offspring of Abraham. He was going to have to bear the weight of their sin on the cross. And on the cross, Jesus and Jesus alone would learn what it means to bear up under the outpouring of the wrath of God for the sins of man. Jesus knew that he was going to have to drink the cup of the wrath to the very bottom. It would have been unimaginable, unthinkable, incomprehensible suffering. He refused to give in to sin and to walk away from it 
Even when they mocked him on the cross and hung the sign over him that said in a mocking way, King of the Jews. Even when the people walking around called on him, if you are who you say you are, free yourself from the cross. And even though as we well know, he could have called down legions of angels to bring it to an end right then and right there. He knew it would have been disobeying his father. And he refused to give in to the temptation that was being thrown at him every single moment. And instead, he endured suffering without relief to a greater degree than any of us will ever face. So when verse 18 says that he suffered when tempted, it doesn't mean that he experienced the inner warfare that we experience of the sinful flesh raging against the spirit. That's the kind of suffering that we face. And it is hard and it is suffering. But more often than not, we just give in to the suffering. We just give in because we want relief from the battle. We just give in to sin so that we don't have to fight any longer. So that we don't have to keep up the suffering of fighting against it and thinking about it and resisting it. But we have a high priest who never gave in to temptation to lessen his suffering. Not once. Even though his perfect pursuit of righteousness increased his suffering, and therefore he is able to help us when we are tempted. He knows what it means to suffer when tempted to an even greater degree, an exponentially greater degree than we do. C.S. Lewis is helpful here. This is what C.S. Lewis says. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it really is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. Christ because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows what full temptation means. But here's what makes verse 18 even sweeter to you and to me this morning. Verse 18 says, He is able to help. And this is where grammar is glorious. It's in the present tense, friends. He is able right now, this very moment, to continually, ongoing, day by day, help those who are being tempted. This isn't an historical event in the past. This isn't something we're waiting on in the future. This is something you and I are experiencing right now, this very moment. Right now, Jesus is able to help us when we're tempted. Right now. Jesus right now is sitting at the Father's right hand, interceding for us. He is praying for us. He is pleading on our behalf. He is an ever-present help to us. Therefore, when you struggle with sin, when this afternoon you are tempted towards sin, when you wake up in the morning and when the desires of the world come flooding at you and the, 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 the war begins in your soul and your sinful nature is kicked into gear and you are waging war against the spirit who dwells within you, know that Jesus is there and he's ready to help you and he knows what it means to keep on suffering and to not give in and he is able to give you strength in that moment. 
Lean on him, depend on him, and come to him because he gets it. He understands it, and he has been through suffering when tempted. Let's, let's do bad help he is ready against sin for the glory of Christ, relying on the help he is ready to pour out on us. So my prayer this morning from this passage is that our love and affection for and our dependence on Christ has increased. That we would daily come to Jesus pleading for his help because of all that he has accomplished for us in his incarnation. Listen, he has destroyed the one who has the power of death. Satan holds no threat over you any longer. He's, he's destroyed. He is defeated. You no longer need to fear death. You are free from that slavery to death. You are free to live for the glory of Jesus Christ. Jesus came in the flesh and he has become our merciful and faithful high priest. He has laid down his life on the cross bearing the sins that you and I deserve and we will never have to face the wrath and condemnation of God because of the work of Jesus Christ in our place. And not only that, but in his flesh he suffered when tempted and therefore, he is ready and willing and able to pour out mercy and grace and strength to you when you suffer through temptation. May he be the central fixture of our lives. What a majestic, kind, patient, loving, and sovereign Savior we worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these glorious realities. What a privilege it has been to meditate on the glories of Jesus Christ and all that he has accomplished for us. Jesus, we praise you in your victory and defeat of Satan. We praise you and worship you that we no longer need to fear death, that we are no longer enslaved to that fear. We can live in freedom for the glory of your name. Jesus, thank you for becoming a merciful and faithful high priest, for laying down your perfect, sinless life on the cross that we might live eternally. And thank you, Jesus, that you get it when the struggle against sin is so hard, when it's so difficult, when the flesh is waging war against the Spirit. And we feel like we can't bear up under it any longer, Father. I pray that you would remind us that Jesus is able to help because he suffered more than we can ever imagine when he faced the temptations and the tests and the trials of this world and he never once gave in. And so Father, I pray that that reality would sustain us. Jesus, I pray that we would turn to you on a daily basis to give us strength to do battle against sin. And I pray that you would use that to bring victory in the lives of every person sitting here this morning, including my own heart. And that we would continually be putting sin to death in our lives because you right now, Christ, are able to help us. So, Father, I pray that you would continue to make Christ the central reality of Christ Fellowship Leesville for the glory of your name. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. 
Amen.